0: Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the fourth of our series of summer special episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast that collectively provide an outside-in perspective on HR. In many respects, the COVID-19 pandemic is essentially a people crisis, and it's been heartening to witness that many organisations we work with at Insight 222 have put the safety and wellness of their workforce at the centre of their response to the crisis. However, multiple studies show that an alarming majority of employees are actively disengaged and unmotivated. They are not helping their organizations. And by suppressing what neuroscientists call our seeking systems, organizations are not helping their employees by focusing on making work routine instead of creative and joyful. Our guest for this week's episode is Dan Cable, Professor of Organizational Behaviour at London Business School. Dan explains that because we spend most of our waking hours at work, his mission is to spend his working hours trying to understand how people can feel like work is part of their real life rather than the long commute to the weekend. After recording this episode with Dan, I had an extra zest and spring in my step for the rest of the day. I'm confident that many of you will experience the same positive reaction after listening to Dan's energy, passion and ideas and the evidence that he provides that backs this up. In our conversation... Dan and I discuss why biology as opposed to lack of motivation causes the malaise of workplace disengagement. We talk about how by galvanizing three triggers, leaders can activate their employees seeking systems and drive exploration and learning. We look at how HR can use job crafting to drive engagement, stimulate learning and create innovation and essentially enable people to bring their best selves to work. And Dan also walks through a three-step process for people to stimulate their full potential, as outlined in his upcoming book, Exceptional. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested in how neuroscience can help drive culture, engagement and wellness in their organizations. So that's business leaders, organizational psychologists, chief HR officers, senior HR leaders and anyone in a people analytics or HR business partner role. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dan Cable, Professor of Organizational Behaviour at London Business School, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you for your time. Please, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and and what you're currently doing? Okay, great.
1: I'm here at London Business School with Organizational Behaviour, which has a lot to do with how people act at work. And the thing that I'm fascinated by, and I really try to focus a lot of my research on, is why most people treat work as... um, a necessary evil, sort of a commute to the weekend, and I'm thrilled when I find organizations and employees that feel that it's a joy. That it's like a real hunk of their life, and the difference between that is palpable. So that's
0: what I try to focus my time, energy, research on. I think we we both have a shared ambition to try and make work better, um, and I you know I know we're gonna we're gonna talk about that over the next uh, next 40 minutes or so. So your book, Alive at Work, actually looks at, actually does that a little bit. It looks at the neuroscience of helping people love what they do at work. Um, but we know in most cases, people are disengaged and, and lack motivation. You know, what are some of the things that are causing this malaise? I think that one of the interesting parts of this for me
1: is a general culture that seems to teach us or even brainwash us that work is something you want to do less of. And this is something I grew up with. My father was a truck driver. My mom was a secretary. And just the culture in our household, in our community was that you would try to do as little as possible because it was work. And uh, I'll even take a step farther. My dad once told me, well, of course you don't like your job. That's why it's called work almost the idea like, well, if you liked it, then they wouldn't pay you or you'd never want to like it because it's work. And um, anyway, I think a lot of us grow up that way. And I I don't think that's something we're going to fix on this call. But I do think it's interesting to remember that there is something out in the ether
0: that we're supposed to not like it. And I guess now where a lot of us are, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the impact of uh, COVID-19 at some point. But now, of course, where we can be contacted far more easily, a lot of us, particularly those of us working in white collar jobs, work becomes even more, it could, there's the a danger that work become even more of something that people hate, you know, because yes. they're getting emails from their boss at 9.30 at night, for example. In a postmodern world,
1: you would look at this and say, we've been taken captive at this point. We're fully locked in to the corporate machine. <laughs> and we've, Gladly, willingly giving it away because we all carry these devices uh, 24-7. The thing that the book concentrates more on, and the reason why this is actually important to kind of transition out of what I might call sociology into psychology and even neuroscience, is there appears to be some ideas about the way we originally set up organizations that conflict with the way that our brains are built. And when you ask the very good question, why is there so much malaise, Um, A more practical answer would be that in the 1900s, when we made big organizations, we really became fascinated with reliability and predictability and scale. And we needed to. I'm not saying that that was evil. I'm saying that's what the goal was, to try to create global and not just village-wide distribution. But as part of that, we made people... um, into processing units that could be interchanged and we made scripts and very, very small job responsibilities so that people be- could become really, really efficient. They even call it like hyper-specialized. And I'm, again, none of that's evil, but what it does is it conflicts with a part of our brain that urges us to look beyond what you already know and try new things and learn and experiment and look for your effect when you act. What is your effect on the world? And um, we've created workspaces that shut off that part of the brain. And so I can talk a lot, and maybe we will talk a lot about what are the triggers of that part of the brain? Why is it that it creates this feeling of malaise and even depression, even, even depression. But I think that at that top level, it's kind of our fault in a way as we created an organization that seemed great for scale but that wasn't consistent with how our brains evolved
0: and i guess we still in many organizations we've still got those hierarchies um that, that that kind of very tight sort of restriction around what individuals do within organizations and maybe as you said maybe that was fine for the 20th century or you know and but now we we live in a much different world where you know, and but yet, still, big organizations still have these hierarchies. They're still trying to restrict what people can do. And as you said, that can be quite frustrating because you know we we're naturally curious. Well, most humans are naturally curious and want to do other things, and we're quite creative as well. And I think a lot of our organizations actually stop that. That's right. There's so much to be said
1: about this area. Um, one of the things that I'm most curious about right now. Is the idea that the speed of change seems to be increasing, and so as an example, if we go back to 1905, when we started making automobiles, you know Henry Ford, kind of the big innovation was to bring the assembly line to this process of making an automobile, and so you know made people have very structured, tight briefs in terms of their their daily activities. So you basically repeated the same activity. 100 times a day and it's interesting that when he did that change wasn't as rampant and so the idea that they painted that car the same color black for 13 years before taste change that really is somehow um it's strong for me or like when here's another one when they invented the telephone this would be um around, what 1900 to get 50 million of those sold took 70 years By the time you got to the Internet, in four years, you had 50 million people using the Internet. It's it's just this idea that the distribution is at a different pace than when we invented these big organizations with these tight scripts. Because the tight scripts kind of presume repetition, reliability over many, many years and maybe decades. And now we don't get many years. We don't even get many months. Like if you're in IT, you sometimes, you don't even get weeks. You know, the competition and the rate of change and the rate of innovation and adaptation, it's almost like we're still trying to use a 1900s era form of work and then drag it into a world that doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to it. And, um, and the reason why I love you bringing this up, David, what it means is this malaise is not just bad for humans and they have to trudge through it but it's great for organizations it used to be that way now it's terrible for humans and terrible for organizations because they become rigid hard to adapt they become
0: dinosaurs and it's just we're 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 in this lose lose situation in many cases right now it's making senior leaders in organizations realize that that there needs to be a different way and if they you know, if they if they create the 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 space for people to be more creative and to be more motivated and to you know to be more innovative and experiment, perhaps their company will be more successful because their company will innovate against the competition. Which you know, as you said, time we go so fast at the moment. New entrants can come into to markets very quickly and and quickly gobble up quite a lot of um, of business and take that away from more traditional organisations who, as you say, are maybe too rigid to. To adapt.
1: So right. I don't want to steer too much, but I just want to say at some point during this conversation, it would be fun to talk about the difference between recognizing something cognitively and acting different behaviorally, because certainly the listeners of this podcast are all going to understand the need for organic adaptation, the need for innovation in every seat. You know, they're going to get that the vast majority. What it implies about organizational form and the structure of the organization is scary to probably even many of the listeners. And I mean, advanced um, thinkers that are going to be hearing us talk right now. It's also the case that if they are in charge of changing that organization, they become a threat. They become a threat to the stability of a hierarchy that has a lot of incentives to say they get it but they still want it to run the way it used to run. And in my own experiences, this is one of the things that is, it's almost like an organizational killer. It's almost like there's a gap between knowing and doing.
0: You almost need need the organization to start feeling the pain before the leaders actually decide to do something about it, which isn't really how it should be because when organizations feel the pain, it's the workers that suffer.
1: Yes, there's so many great examples of that. Uh, <laughs> can I tell you one right now real quick? Yeah, yeah, okay, please, please. We're doing a study right now with, um, uh, I'm going to leave the organization nameless for now because it's yet to be seen whether this is a good story or a bad story. But we're doing something really exciting with them where there's going to be five hours a week. I'm sorry, five times a week where they're going to allow the employees to dedicate their time to use their own strengths to solve the organization's problems. So this is a time when they're gonna do deep work, they're gonna shut down their browsers, they're gonna shut down their phones, they're gonna shut down the emails, and they're gonna spend two hours, five times a week, just working on the thing that they think they're most equipped to help. And I mean, everybody's excited about this and you know, they're far flung because they're all working at home. And so it's a way for them to Craft their work according to their strengths to solve the organization's newest problems. It sounds great. Well, the senior leaders loved the idea until we got to the point of them saying, shutting down the emails and shutting down the phones. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, don't we need to be like managing that? And right there, there's this rub. It's a tension, it's a friction where it's like, oh, no. I mean, yes, we want them to be engaged and empowered, but whoa, 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 we need to be able to tell them, don't we? And it's almost like it's hard for them to step outside of the normal and just let this thing go. It's only six weeks. It's just an experiment. But what we're seeing is a lot of discomfort giving up the power.
0: Yeah, I suppose it will be when I guess when the ideas come, and then hopefully the leaders will be open minded and think, "Wow, these are amazing." Because who better to to come up with how an organization should evolve than the people that work for it? It isn't just you know a board of people at the top, usually all white men in their 50s. So, you know, you want to have that people that are interfacing with customers every day, um, that are responsible for developing products or services, whatever. They surely are the people that can come up with the best ideas. Isn't that interesting? So I'm going to sort of hand it back to you. But maybe one of the things that
1: can come up toward the end of this is how interesting and how much potential there is in this situation we're in, because to the extent that this is something that would be valuable for organizations, but is still rare and seems very hard for leaders to get their head around, imitate that is, that seems like the potential for competitive advantage for firms that can
0: do it. So that's really exciting to me. The potential in that seems very large. Well, I think we have probably, probably touched on the next question I was going to ask, actually, you know, that openness from leaders maybe to try something different. You know, what are the steps leaders can take to turn around, turn around the malaise that we were talking about and drive engagement, stimulate learning and create innovation?
1: And the great news is, and I really want this to come off as purely optimistic. The great news is we all have a part of our brain that is evolved across time and ready to serve. Leaders don't have to invent that technology. Evolution has done that. And so if you want the technical name for that part of the brain, it's called the ventral striatum. But the thing that some researchers use, the term that some people use, is called the seeking system. And that's the one that I used in the book, uh, Live at Work. I put it right at the center because it's this part of the brain that is urging us to look beyond already. It, it's the part that's saying say you're bored because you've done the same thing two three four hundred times over the last five months it's the part of the brain that gives you boredom and says you're better than this you know it's urging you to expand your impact and look beyond what you already know and this part of the brain there's th- there seem to be at least three, like triggers or stimulants that I'll tell you about. They're very practical and they also don't take much money. This is the part of it that gives you so much hope. You don't need like a two or three million pound budget to make this thing work. It really is more about getting a mindset of giving employees the chance to trigger what they already want to trigger. But in any case, um, the thing that's so exciting about this, when you talked about these malaise conditions, these are emotions, emotions like boredom and malaise, and even the feeling of depression. A lot of that has to do with certain chemicals. And I am not a neuroscientist, and I don't, I'm not even pretending to be one. I'm a psychologist. I read a lot of that stuff. But almost everything I read talks about dopamine, dopamine and it's a neurotransmitter, it's a drug. It's legal and it's free, (laughs) but it is a drug. And the feeling of this drug is um, some really positive emotions. There are emotions of excitement and enthusiasm. There are emotions of zest. The word zest is one of the most exciting words that I understand, and I really mean this. Um, When you feel zest, the feelings that life is a joy, that you get to do. It's like a treat that you get to have. And the opposite of zest is depressive symptoms when life feels like a hassle that you have to get through. And dopamine seems to be the magic elixir that makes you feel zest. It makes you feel quite up. And I mean, again, um, it's like the legal cousin of cocaine, I think. It, because it's not the kind of drug that just makes you want to like chillax and get comfortable. It's like stimulating that it makes you want to do more. It's effervescent. So it makes you want to give and create impact and use your strengths. So what's so exciting about this to me is that if leaders can find a way to activate this part of the brain, you're giving people a
0: gift. And the gift is like more living in life. So if leaders, are, if leaders are able to understand this and think, how can we trigger dopamine in our employees, the organization is going to benefit and the employees are going to benefit. And I guess one of those things is by stimulating things like learning and innovation and, and allowing people to be creative and to not necessarily do what they want, but apply a little bit of freedom around how they do their work.
1: Absolutely. And you've said it so well right there. I'll just play with that for a minute. The word freedom is really important. The freedom has to be within a frame. Yeah, And so the frame of that is getting the product delivered on time, meeting customer promises, meeting brand promises, meeting regulations. We're not saying freedom in the sense of like, just be you. (laughs) Just go out and then create whatever you want to create. What we're saying is the organization will win when we deliver effectively, but the most effective way of delivering we may not know as senior leaders because we don't do the work. And um, these three triggers that I wanted to bring up with you, uh, they're not hard to understand, they're just kind of rare because of the way that we invented management, frankly. Okay, so let's just walk through them and then you'll help me unpack them to the amount that you think is, is useful. Okay, so the first one that most people already know about and lots of organizations are already playing with, is experimentation. And this would be allowing people some space to try it in a way that they think would work better. And sometimes that doesn't go perfectly. And that's called learning. But a lot of times leaders are very averse to learning. They say they love it until employees do it. And then when employees do it and they find out, oh, well, that didn't work as well, Then there's punishment. There's the slap on the hand, there's the take the raise, take the bonus, take the rewards. And so then they shut it down. But I'm sure most of our leaders have heard of psychological safety. This is Amy Edmondson's work, and she's at Harvard. She's written a great book called The Fearless Organization about
0: this. I interviewed Amy early this week. So she's going to be on, I think, the podcast episode two before you. So there we are. That's really, really nice because she kind of literally wrote the book on this concept.
1: And the idea of giving people space to experiment and play seems to light up this part of the brain. So I've dedicated two chapters on that. It sounds like she dedicated the whole book. There's a lot of evidence on that topic. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one, and, and by the way, when I said you don't need much money, you, you really don't. Like I helped a company here called Deal Logic, right here in London. They also have offices in New York City and in Budapest. We operated on all three of them and we just did this hackathon kind of stuff and we're now doing it three times a year. And to be honest, you can just watch people light up. We let them form their own teams. And then they think about a project that they think would help the organization. They get together. They they work really hard. Sometimes they stay there 12, 14 hours working on their own projects. Some people don't go home. They pull all-nighters because it's just so much fun to see what they can do. And then they present that the next day at noon on a Friday to the bosses, you know, to the supervisors, to the leaders. They say, here's what we did. And then the leaders that like it, they invest energy and money, but more time in those ideas. What they really do that's the most valuable, there's a little bit of money and a little bit, but really what they do is they say, okay, in the next week, we want you to spend another day as a team, get back together, pursuing that project more. Uh, The second one that I wanted to mention is this notion that we all have strengths. We have things that seem to call to us in terms of what we're capable of. So like for me, for whatever reason, I use a lot of humor I use humor when I'm teaching. I laugh a lot. And what I find is if I'm able to bring that style into my teaching, into my podcast, into my research relationships, things just go better. Like I laugh more and life feels better. That's not to say that other people have to do it that way. It's not to say that you have to be a funny teacher. There's lots of authentic ways to deliver value. This notion of playing to your strengths. understanding who you are at your best, and getting feedback from the external world about how you make your biggest impact. The evidence is really strong that this lights people up and that it it makes any task seem more meaningful, more purposeful when you're bringing what's best about you to it. Now, that doesn't take money, but it takes dedication it uh, it means that leaders have to allow employees to craft their work around their strengths now the evidence suggests this works really really well but it means you have to take your foot off of draconian control <laughs> you you if you have 10 people doing a certain job with the same job description it used to be in henry ford's day they had to do it the same way and all the reward systems assumed you're going to do it the same way and this new approach says well, you might need to create the same impact, but the way you do it and the way I do it might be very different.
0: And it's, uh, yeah, as you said, you know, if the, the goal is uh, to deliver a product by a certain day and people go about that differently, but they still deliver a great product on that day, what's the problem? What's the problem?
1: And if sometimes you try it your way and it doesn't work as well, let's look at what we've
0: learned there.
1: The third, and we can dig into all of these more because I've got studies and stories for each of these. These are very evidence-backed concepts. These three that I'm talking about, these aren't just three that I pulled out of a hat. Um, These are three that I can defend with evidence. And in my book, each of them gets two chapters where I actually cite the evidence as well. And I mean, this is like published in the top scientific journals kind of evidence. And uh, that's really important to say out loud, at least for me, there's a lot of things in the world that sound nice, but then it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, you've got to be backed by you know. I think you know one of the things that we're doing with 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 us customers is is around people analytics and you know using data to to make better decisions, but then actually measuring that those decisions were the right decisions. So you've got the evidence then to to to, to do that. And sometimes you'll. The evidence will suggest it wasn't the right decision, but always you want to learn from that. So yeah, I think it's it's good. So let's unwrap the third one and maybe let's then look at a couple of evidence from a couple of them. Uh, the third one has to do with personalizing purpose.
1: Purpose is a real big topic right now. It's a huge concept. Most leaders know they're supposed to talk about purpose and lots of leaders will even sort of create these offsites where they'll go and kind of structure a purpose and then they'll come back and feed it to people. Personalizing purpose is very different from that um this part of the brain called the ventral striatum the seeking system it doesn't it's an emotion not a cognition so a leader or a leadership team can't ignite the part of the brain by giving you the purpose it, they can't go off and say we've decided this is it and this part of the brain will just hum it's neutral it, what it has to do is see its impact firsthand it to say who am i impacting When I do my job, who is affected? Why does my work matter in the world? And so the way that our brain evolved is seeing that, witnessing it, experiencing it. It's very different for a leader to say, we're here for the customers. It's very different when a customer is yelling at you, when a customer is very grateful to you. The gratitude or the anger, those are emotions that our body feels and then has to respond to. So what I'm really keen to do is help leaders not give people the purpose, but, but create environments where people can feel the purpose firsthand. And so the book is chock-a-block full of these ideas, but let me give you one example right now. Um, I was interviewing some people at Microsoft, and they have one location um, in Europe where the, the country manager... I don't know if you know a lot about this, but Microsoft is moving away from a software company and toward a solutions company. And so they're doing a lot of customization around their work. But anyway, they'll do a thing where rather than one person, the client management person going on site and trying to understand a hospital who's trying to go paperless, they'll take a whole team of people. They'll take 15 people to the hospital. And I mean like they'll take programmers, they'll take project leads, they'll, they'll, they'll take um, leaders, they'll all go on site and they'll interview the people that they're serving. They'll interview um, a secretary who's going to have to go paperless and say, what are your worries? What are your concerns? They'll interview doctors, they'll interview nurses, um, radio technicians. Every, and what they'll do is they'll get a full-blooded view of what is the problem and what are the concerns. And then they'll all go back and solve that problem. And now the old pair of glasses of the industrial revolution, well that's stupid. That's a waste of time. Why would you take a programmer to talk to a nurse? That's the client rep's problem. But the new pair of glasses is because you want to personalize the purpose. You want each of those people to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what impact their work will have. And I could go on and on, but the evidence is really clear that this not only ignites people's positive emotions, it also makes them more resilient. So that when you hit roadblocks and the problems that come with a project, they're much more willing to overcome those. They're much more able to bounce back. So again, um, if I had to dismount. This is not only really good for organizations because you get resilience and you get adaptability and you get innovation and you get people's enthusiasm. That's great. And you get that for no more money. You don't have to give them, you don't have to give them raises to get this. You just pay people fairly and allow this part of the brain to thrive. But more importantly, this is good for the humans. You know, this means they're less likely to get sick. They're less likely to get headaches. They're less likely to hate work where they spend most of their waking hours. So I get so excited because I think this is so humanistic.
0: Well, I suppose what it, I mean, the example you gave with Microsoft, that brings variety to that programmer's role. He's not just sitting in, he or she is not just sitting in an office programming. They're actually getting to see the, potentially getting to see the result of, of the work that they're doing. And as you said, understanding the problem before they go away and do the work. And it just it, it just seems to make sense. Otherwise, you're just relying on one client manager to make sure that they get the brief properly, they understand it at all the different levels they would need to understand it, and then actually translate that to all the various people in the team. Far better to hear it up front for those 15 people in the team who probably have different strengths, different areas of, of the of the product or or solution that they're looking to to build for that hospital. Just makes sense, doesn't it? As you're talking right now, I'm smiling inside
1: because while our listeners will mostly understand what you just said... I'm smiling because there are so many leaders out there in the world that don't fully respect their employees' brains and their abilities. They hire them as a widget. They hire them as a transaction. They hire them as a a maximally functioning robot app. And they would be very surprised and even reticent to believe that by giving more power, freedom, information, they would get far better ideas, insights, solutions. They still have a a sort of great person image of themselves where they have to come up with the solutions and then teach them because they're the smart one. And boy, is it painful to try to help these people. I mean, I, I don't think this is the function of your podcast. I don't think this is where we want to go, but I do think this is one of the largest problems that I see right now. It's usually not the HR leaders, that have trouble seeing this sometimes is, it's it's often the people with even more power, that just see people as interchangeable widgets. They're still using like 1910 models of organization, and they're almost creating conflicts with HR leaders because then the HR leaders are like, but no, we we can't create a budget for the next quarter because we don't know what the solution is yet. We have to work in a more agile way where we have to give people freedom to learn. But those top level leaders say, but no, no, we need the budget. <laughs> and there's like, a, there's a back and forth conflict of 1910 organization and 2021 organization.
0: And maybe, um, you know, obviously there's been lots of press out there. Everyone's talking about resets and, and what's going to happen after COVID. We're still in the middle of the crisis at the moment. So I think it may be people being a little bit premature perhaps, uh, but that's just my opinion. Um, you know. I think we could probably talk about the challenges, but maybe it's more interesting to talk about what opportunities does this create, and to r- remove some of these routine and unnecessary tasks as organisations have done because they've been implementing technology in weeks instead of years. And is this does this give of, of, to use the term reset that seems to be used a lot? Does it actually? Help force a reset and change some of that thinking that you've talked about in some of those leaders. I'm really glad that you asked this, and I loved how you're framing it as like an opportunity and not a threat.
1: That's really smart. But the two things there's at least two things, there's probably many, many more, but the two that I've seen are number one, there's a case that's now been proven that the old ways of working aren't necessary, that people can work autonomously, remotely, that Organizations don't need to continue insisting on that micromanagement, literally looking over your shoulder control. And I think that for a lot of leaders, they're having to learn that. They would have never done the experiment, but the experiment has been done to them. And I think that that is worth its weight in gold. And there are a lot of organizations that they're not going to go back now because they're seeing that, oh, my God, well, why are we renting all this space? Or they're like, why are we putting all this control? And wait a minute, all those old performance management systems. Wait a minute, you're, you're telling me we don't need those? Well, then why are we doing them? So their, their rational self-interest is going to help them. <laughs> and that's going to help us. <laughs> okay, so that's wonderful. There's something really positive, And we can talk a lot more about that, but I've, I've seen that happen. The second one has to do with how it's felt to the employees, to be forced to craft their work, to be forced to rethink their work, to almost use the word reset. The way that I used to do my work, meaning the scripts, the policies, the procedures that I had to follow. Okay, well, I can't do them anymore. Plus, the customer doesn't even want it that way. And plus, I can't even do it that way anymore because that whole shipment is not possible that way anymore. Now, I have to invent and even reinvent what I do, but I still have to solve the same problem. That type of how would I best solve my problem? How would I use my strengths to quickly adapt? That's called job crafting. And there's a whole stream of evidence that suggests that it's the future. It's also deeply disruptive. Tell me more about
0: the job crafting then. I think that that sounds really interesting. Well,
1: here's okay, let me tell you um, at the high level and then we'll dig in. At the high level, the Industrial Revolution was started on job descriptions being replicable, being very like uh, directive, c- controlling. The, the leader figured out what they wanted done, and then they broke the job up into these little chunks, sub-jobs, and then you give each of those to a person, you tell them specifically deliberately, this is what we want you to do. And that all of HR is built on that. How do we hire people? Go to the job description. How do we pay people? Go to the job description, do a job evaluation. If you have 10 people, how do we compare them? Look at the job description, look at the metrics. This is a way of running and controlling organizational life. Job crafting is really disruptive because what it starts with is you don't know what the job is until you know the person. The job depends on the person's strengths. I mean, you might know what the job needs to create today, but it'll be different next week and it'll certainly be different next month. So it's silly to think about the job description is static because the world's not static. And we could invent the job and pretend and then say, oh, we should pay it this amount. But I mean, all of those things are based on a fiction, which is like it'll be the same next year. Now, we're still using it. We're largely still using job descriptions as the basis of everything. But job crafting disrupts that and says each individual has to be given maximum information about what the job is for so that they can use the best strengths they have and bring the best thing that they have to work and then solve the organization's problems. It's much more of a partnership model. It starts with the assumption that the employee needs to be given information and power and they, they have to be listened to. And then, oh my God, this is so disruptive. The, the leader's job is to try to help them. See, a lot of leaders still think that the employee's job is to help them. But you have to flip it and say, no, the leader's job is to help the employees solve the actual problems of the organization. If the leader isn't helping them, they're not really adding much value, if you think of it, because they're just overhead. Like the leader doesn't make anything. (laughs) The leader doesn't talk to customers. The only job of the leader is to help actual employees create actual output. But this is so disruptive for many leaders. And I have to tell you, a lot of hierarchical leaders, they actually get a bit angry with me when I
0: bring this stuff up. I mean, you've talked about a couple of examples. Who is doing, is, is there any companies out there that you're like, either you're working with or that you know of that are doing this well that actually are doing job crafting? I think so. I mean, like one that I'm working with right now quite a bit is called Ransdad. They're doing some
1: incredible stuff right now about how they respond to their local conditions using metrics and data but then giving the metrics and data to the employees themselves and having the employees themselves come up with solutions that would help them make those local metrics thrive and soar. And they're just investing really deeply in giving up power locally while trying to have the frame of a successful organization. And, uh I think that they're doing really wonderful things. I mean, I, I'm working carefully and closely with them. I have another book coming out in 2021. It's going to be called "Alive at Scale," something like this. It's it's how do you do this not in a team of 20 people, but in an organization of 20,000 or 200,000? How do you bring the whole organization alive? How do you bring it totally alive? You know, and um, I think that's an organization, not at the, I don't know at the whole level, but this level of how they serve customers using metrics and a frame, but then giving freedom and humanism within that, uh, they're doing a great job of this. I mentioned Microsoft. I don't want to oversell them because um, I think that it's in vogue right now to talk about Microsoft doing so great. But I will say that I watched them go from being a uh, know it all organization, very top down, and the goal was to be the smartest person in the room very masculine, you know, very chest-beating, and they've moved very much for Satna Nadelli toward a learn-it-all organization, where the point is to be curious. The point is for leaders to try to understand how to customize, um, to not sort of be draconian, but to more be um, empathetic and listening. I think it's an organization, if you look at how they're doing in the marketplace, I mean, they're really thriving right now. So... Do you know this company called Dairy Crest? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but something that I wrote about in my book that was very interesting, although I didn't name names in the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> when when Okado came in and kind of offered a lot of delivery options for groceries, Dairy Crest was really floundering, and they needed ideas and concepts and innovations from the actual drivers, but they created a really draconian, bureaucratic, top-down type management style. And one of the most successful things that they did is when they decided to take these weekly meetings where they used to kind of yell at the drivers for what they messed up. And they flipped it and they started asking, how can I help you deliver great customer service? And it took a little while. I'm not going to say it, to, it was the first week. It was perfect. But within about two months, the ideas that were coming in from the drivers were so exceptional, you know, uh, and the sort of entrepreneurialism that they invoked, you know, that they ignited was really palpable. Anyway, I wrote lots of stuff about that in the book and I don't want to go on about it. But what I'm learning is, I think almost any organization can do this because organizations are full of employees who all have seeking systems and they all have so much more energy and ideas within them, but they're being constrained often by these old systems of HR, frankly. It is an HR problem, ultimately, because theoretically, HR's job, people systems, people analytics, I don't know what words we want to use anymore, but the people that are in charge of how do we get the most out of people, I don't think that we've
0: done enough.
1: I I don't think we've moved the ball that far.
0: Let's explore that a little bit, because one of the questions we're asking everyone on the show over the summer is, what can HR do to drive more value? And I think you've got some very original ideas here that I think could, um, that I think people would, would welcome listening to. Absolutely. I mean, I wish I knew is the quick answer. I wish it was like something in a bottle. It's
1: probably not, but yeah. The things that need to happen that start there is somehow HR, you know, this whole thing that started in the 90s where HR became a, a partner in the business. I don't think we've made as much progress on that as possible. And, and sometimes I'm going to be really profane Sometimes I wonder if we don't need to blow up the function in some way that's a little bit more structural. And I don't mean that the people listening don't do their jobs well. I do mean that it's badly branded. Yeah. It's still seen as like, not in all organizations, but in many organizations, oh yeah, yeah, bring HR in because we're gonna have to like deal with the people stuff. If we start thinking about like AI and machine learning as new ways of working, as we start thinking about the speed of change and how organizations have to adapt, not on a yearly basis, but a monthly basis, as we start thinking about like how hyper competitive it is to get these very best employees in place. Those are the business makers. Like how we work is now how we win. And I don't think that we meaning organizations and I mean, even humanity have really given that function the centrality that it will need to have. So it's almost like what I'm saying here, and I think this is a bit profane, HR needs to be ingested into all leaders in a way that I still don't see it often happening. It has to be sort of consumed within, like it has to live in every leader instead of it being hand that off to hr you know, like, like hr used to basically be like accounting and payroll
0: and he's changing he's changing i think you know when you see i mean you mentioned microsoft that other more forward-thinking organizations i think hr's getting much more involved in understanding um and improving employee experience and i think That's, everything we've talked about today is, is is stuff that could improve the employee experience by providing more freedom within a framework perhaps By allowing people to be more creative and more innovative and asking them for their ideas. I mean, simply doing that is is surely a great way to improve experience.
1: And maybe that's what we play with in terms of the most practical thing. I'm glad you brought that up, David, because if you consider those three triggers as evidence based mechanisms that stimulate a part of the brain, let's call that like the biology of adaptation. That's that's like literally looking at if you want the organization to adapt, this is the biology that will get you there. And these triggers are evidence based, meaning they pretty much work like not every single time. It's not that nothing can go wrong, but like these are your best path. That is HR's goal then is how do we create an organization where people are feeling safe to experiment and learn and then share that learning so that we become a learning organization? How do we create an organization where people get information about who they are at their best so that they can feel affirmed to bring those unique perspectives to the team, to bring those individualistic behaviors or those idiosyncratic ideas, you know, how do we unleash those? And then how do we help them personalize purpose so it doesn't feel like management stuffing purpose in their mouth, but instead they're noticing it and experiencing it firsthand. If those became the domains that HR broke itself into, not incentives and comp versus training, and it, it almost could become like the way they thought of themselves. Those could become the functionalities that HR delivered. That's exciting to me. That's really exciting. To me. Can I say something else that I didn't touch on earlier? The book that I'm coming out, I'll put these together. Uh, it's called Exceptional. And it starts with something around your best self. And most organizations, and I mean, 99.8% of organizations are not doing this. But what we're doing, I started a company that's doing this is we're taking an individual, say David, and we're allowing you to tell us about family, friends, colleagues, ex-bosses, mentors, high school friends, college friends, professors. You give us people that know you quite well. And then we go out to them and we say to each of these people, do you have any memories about a time David was at his best? A time that David made his biggest impact. Can you tell us about that? And they'll they'll write that down in a narrative, in a story. Usually it's a paragraph, sometimes two, sometimes it's a whole page. And then we'll gather those up. Sometimes we'll get as many as 30 or 40 of those. And then we put them, we compile them, we give them to you. That's called like a highlights reel. It helps you see who you are at your best. And David, that's something that organizations are not using at all. And I cannot tell you the power that it unleashes. It, the energy, the enthusiasm, the the animation, <laughs> the inspiration, We now have, I did five studies, it's coming out in a publication um, pretty soon, Academy of Management Journal is going to publish this. It really helps open up people's unique ideas and bring them to the team. It helps them contribute more to the team. All the evidence is this works. What I can tell you is no organizations are basically using it. (laughs) I'm just so excited about the potential of what we're not doing that clearly evidence-based works. I just wanted to say that because that is the theme and kind of like the center of this next book, Exceptional, is like, why is it that we're waiting till people die to give them their eulogies? Why don't we structure ways to learn while they're still alive how they make their best impact and let them know now?
0: Well, yeah, because I guess everyone else in the team probably doesn't know half of this stuff as well. And then you really start to understand, okay, this is how we gel together as a team and really achieve. And when when does the book come out? It's coming out September of this year.
1: So September 20th of um, uh, 2020. And there's going to be like a hope, a fair amount of fanfare. But what I love about the book for me is it's not written for leaders. It's written as how can humans form better relationships and feel more energized about life? It's very much written at the level of, You could do this with your kids. You could do this with your auntie. I mean, you don't have to be a leader to do this. Everybody's a leader in that sense, but it certainly is applicable to HR space and it certainly is applicable to getting people to affirm who they are at their best and then personalize the impact that they create um, and use their strengths. It's really built around everything we've just talked about, which is, experimenting with your strengths to solve the organization's problems and feel more impact and more purpose and more meaning
0: well i think that's the perfect line on, on, on which to end um our, our discussion and i wish we could talk for longer you know and for those listening we'll provide links to exceptional alive at work and i'm looking forward already to alive at scale uh, when that comes out next year um thanks for being a guest on the show dan can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and follow you on social media as well sure um i use twitter the most and so that's at dan cable one that's what i use and i
1: put something out about every day and the second thing is my website is actually getting better <laughs> i don't know uh, but it's it's dan dash cable.com and i'm putting all my talks and things up there so there's a lot of sort of digital assets that people can just go and watch if they would like
0: fantastic We'll we'll link to that um when we in the in the commentary around this podcast dan it's been a amazing conversation i feel inspired now for the rest of the day so thank
1: you so much david i also feel really good
0: so thank you very much and hope we get to meet at some point in a not too distant future we're both in london so it shouldn't be too far shouldn't be too hard okay thanks dan thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the digital hr leaders podcast i hope you enjoyed it you can subscribe by your podcast app of choice if you did enjoy listening please do rate the show on your podcast app share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the my HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the my HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Sophie Rigira Hadrawi on building a people analytics function at the International Committee of the Red Cross. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.